Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, happy Easter. In the first half of the first century AD, there took place probably the single best-known event in all human history. There are four main accounts, all written decades afterwards, and this is one of them. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe upon him, and plaiting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat upon him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they came upon a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. This man they compelled to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mingled with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So Tom Holland, that's a story with which we and a large proportion probably almost all of our listeners, are extremely familiar. And there are all kinds of conversations we could have about um, the historicity of this, uh, about whether Jesus really existed, about whether this really happened. But what we wanted to focus on today was the act of crucifixion itself. Because obviously, when we think of the crucifixion, we think of Jesus. But presumably at the time, Tom, I mean, you'll know far more about this than me, crucifying somebody would not have been unusual, would it, in the Roman world? No, crucifixion was a, ve a very common form of execution. And um, it was a form of execution that was, it was basically seen as the absolute worst that you could inflict. So as a, as a governor of a province, uh, if you were faced with rebellion, banditry, insurrection, you could inflict a range of punishments. So you could burn someone to death. You could feet put them to the beasts. So make them a public show in the arena and, and people would, would cheer as they watched them devoured by wild animals, or you could crucify them. And crucifixion was seen as the worst of these fates because it was protracted and humiliating, even more humiliating than being burnt to death or, or devoured by lions. Um, and it was that idea of being made a public spectacle that I think reflects the way in which, for the Romans, to be shamed was almost as terrible as to be tortured. And that's why, as well as being the, the paradigmatic fate that was visited on rebels, it was also the paradigmatic fate that was visited on slaves. So it's so when Jesus, I mean, we'll come back to Jesus' crucifixion, but he's been crucified as a sign of humiliation, as a sign yes. that he is no more than a slave, and that's yeah. why the G King of the Jews stuff is so is so is bitterly ironic, I suppose. Absolutely. So, so it was crucifixion is called supplicium servile by a Roman writer called Valerius Maximus, the punishment 
of slaves. Um, Josephus, the um, the Jewish writer who records the uh, the war that destroys Jerusalem, he calls it the most wretched of deaths. Um, even a, a grammarian called Varro, he he writes about the crooks, the cross, and he says that the word of it is harsh on the ears. So everything about it is is cruel, savage, bitter, um, and that generates a kind of paradox, which is that. Um, Although, as you say, it's incredibly common and it's something that um, serves the Roman world as an emblem of Rome's power. It's a statement about Rome's authority, about its right to inflict brutal torture on those who oppose them. It's also something that the Romans themselves seem to have been a bit embarrassed about. They didn't like to draw attention to it. Uh, Crucifixions don't happen in the centre of town. So in the account you read, Golgotha, which is otherwise unattested, is a place presumably outside the city limits. Uh, and in Rome itself, crucifixions took place on a remote area that, that, um, of the Esquiline Hill that only very gradually, as Rome expands, gets kind of developed. But for a long time, it has this kind of taint. And that carrion taint, which hangs over crucifixion, means that the Romans themselves are actually very reluctant to acknowledge that it's a Roman practice. So they say, yes, we do it, but this is a practice that has its origins among barbarians. So it's- Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's get, let's get back to the, to, the, to the root of it. So when Tom- do we get our first references to to crucifixions? Is it it predates the empire, presumably? It does. It's complicated though because we think of you know crucifixion as a kind of set practice that there are set rules and so on. Um, it's it's hard to know whether that's the case. The only accounts we have of of an actual crucifixion by the Romans are the four gospel accounts, which in itself is telling. I think it, you know the Romans are reluctant to go into the, all the gory details. And if we go back before the Romans, there are um, various accounts, chiefly by Greek writers, of penalties that seem to involve suspending someone, hanging them, uh, putting them up in a public place and, and, and suspending them from, from a, a tree or a piece of wood. Um, and so this fate could be crucifixion as we understand it in the sense that, you know, uh, that Christians would understand it today, but it could also be impalement or something like that. So I have a question, Tom. Um, friend of the show, Alexander the Great, mm-hmm. is said to have crucified large numbers of people after capturing the city of Tyre yeah. because he was cross. They wouldn't let him in to worship a statue of Heracles. Yeah. Uh, so that, now is that project, because of course the accounts of Alexander that we have are written later. So is that projecting, is that putting back a sort of Roman practice and thinking that he must have done it? Or is it plausible that Alexander was crucifying people and that that was a common practice in the, what is that, the fourth century BC? Um, I think it's likelier to be uh, an actual reflection of what he did because Alexander is invading the Persian Empire and he is taking on the role of a Persian king. And crucifixion, Ah, crucifixion or at least suspending people, impaling people, hanging them from, you know, in, in public so that they, they suffer and die in public is seen as something that originates with the Persians. So Ali Ansari, who's been a guest on the show many times mm. and says everything began with the Persians, will be delighted to hear that crucifixion <laughs> well, is, well, is I've, top tortures uh, are among them. Well, well, but, the Persians are famous for the sophistication and subtlety 
of their torture. Um, and much, much later, the Marquis de Sade, who is a guy who really knows what he's talking about when it comes to torture, says that the Persians of all the peoples who have ever lived um, were, the, were the greatest at uh, torturing people to death. And the idea that um, you punish rebels by exposing them to uh, humiliation, hum you know, the humiliating gaze, uh, is something that certainly goes back to Darius the Great. Um, who is uh, ruling? He well, he so he's the king who sends um, the expedition that gets defeated uh, at the Battle of Marathon, the, the expedition to destroy Athens, and he comes to power amid a coup and all kinds of Persians, uh, provinces, cities rebel against him, and among them is Babylon. And Darius takes three thousand Babylonians and he crucifies them. Or which could, as I say, mean you know he impales them. But certainly, this is remembered. This is a kind of kingly thing to do. This is what the great king does. So I imagine that Alexander, you know, that there is yeah, an echo of that behaviour. Yeah. So, so a slightly pedantic question. You said uh, he crucifies them, which may mean that he impales them. So that implies to me that the word, the original word that is being used, is not the word crucify, right? That it's some other translation or some other words that could mean crucifixion, but could mean something else. Is that right? That there's some sort of vague inter intermediate term. Well, a stavros, a stavros, that's <laughs> where the, the Greek name comes from. It's where from. the word stavros yeah, comes from. Yeah, exactly. Uh, is a, is a, a, a cross, it's conventionally translated as a cross, but it could be a pole, it, you know, it could be, it, it's, there's, it, it's hard, because crucifixion becomes so famous and because, the role it plays in Christianity is so key. It kind of, you know, we tend to back project that as that what happens there onto um, the early use of it by Greek writers. We can't know for sure. It could, you know, it could be a kind of range of things. But the key thing is, is that you are exposed to public obloquy, and that, yeah. you know, that that is the that is absolutely the fundamental aspect of it, and it's what makes the crucifixion with a capital C, so extraordinary and strange that this should be the foundational image. Because obviously for Christians, you know, the key to Easter is the resurrection. It's the rising yeah. from the dead. That's the whole essence of the story. But that in terms of antiquity is not so unusual. Lots of mortals are raised up to the heavens, um, you know, in the lifetime of Jesus. Augustus Caesar has been raised up to the heavens. Augustus Caesar's um, adoptive father, Julius Caesar, has been raised to the heavens. There are all kinds of gods who who die and then get raised from the dead. Yeah, and obviously ancient Egyptian religion is full of this, isn't it? Yes, um, yeah. Is this what happens to Osiris or Horus or somebody? Yeah, so um, Osiris gets killed, loses his penis, which is <laughs> obviously something that doesn't happen to Jesus. Um, and uh, yes, and then, and then he gets resurrected to rule as the king of the dead. Yeah. So this is so, so this is all very common. Um but it's the but humiliation that is unusual. Right? That is the strangeness. That is the weirdness. And until you properly understand its significance in the Roman ma imagination and in the Greek imagination and indeed in the Jewish imagination, yeah. you don't properly understand how strange the whole thing is. Okay, well let's talk a little bit about the Romans and crucifixion. So do we have any sense, Tom, of the kind of people and the kind of crimes um for which you would be crucified. Yeah, so as I said, it's it's chiefly visited on rebels against Roman rule in the provinces and on yeah. slaves. And it comes to serve as, therefore, um, 
a, a kind of warning to anyone, be they a slave rebelling against the master or uh, mm -hmm. a provincial rebelling against the power of Caesar, of what your fate will be. And one of the weirdest expressions of this um, is in the writings of Pliny, the elder, who I'm... You love a bit of Pliny. I love a bit of Pliny. I've been... I, for the new book I'm doing, I've been reading through all his natural history, which is this incredible kind of compendium of all kinds of sometimes very, very accurate facts and sometimes not entirely accurate. And he covers, you know, natural phenomena and... Um, it's like this podcast, Tom. <laughs> well, no, you're very against natural phenomena, aren't you? So he loves his he loves his birds, for instance, which you're yeah. you're very hostile. We were only talking to... before recording this about whether we should do a podcast on the history of birds. Well, we're doing one with I, pigeons, I, of course. Which I is... reacted with incredulity, uh, but but well, Pl ornithological Pl fans will be horrified to hear this. So, but among them, he um, he he talks about animals and he talks about the lion as the king of the lions, and he has this extraordinary story about how. Um, Polybius, who is a Greek who uh, accompanied Scipio Aemilianus, who um, uh, destroyed Carthage in 146 BC, that he was with Scipio in Africa. And he saw Scipio crucify lions so that the other lions, Pliny writes, would be deterred from attacking the cities of Africa by fear of suffering the same fate. That seems absolutely horrible and bizarre. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, is it plausible that he did that? Well, it's in Pliny, so. <laughs> and, and, and also, Tom, would it act as a deterrent to other lions? I think it, I think it's <laughs> unlikely. But obviously, what it would do would act as a as a deterrent to uh, people in Africa. Because I'm, you think I'm you more know... shocked by that than I am by the crucifixion of thousands of people that we've talked about earlier in the podcast. Well, there's another uh, another crucifixion of animals story, uh, which is yeah. the the famous account of. Um, the Gauls trying who, who capture Rome, seize Rome, um, and they occupy the city, but the capital holds out and uh, the Gauls are creeping up the side of the rock to try and storm the top. And the watchdogs don't bark, but the sacred, the sacred geese of Juno, the queen of the gods, hiss oh, yeah, and alert the guards. Hits. And so um, every year that on the anniversary of that day, um, the geese are put in a, a, a litter and carried in triumph through the city, but the watchdogs are crucified. I mean, it's it's well, through no like subsequent generations of dogs. Yeah, I mean that makes Jeremy Thorpe look positively. <laughs> no, well we haven't yeah. we haven't had uh, dogs being killed for a while, so um, we're That's as it were terrible. resurrecting the uh, that, the tradition. <laughs> very good. That's a terrible story. Now the reason I asked about the what who was executed, who was crucified, and why was because and and when you answered that. Both of the examples you gave were about um, rebels. So you're not crucified by and large for a common or garden crime, even even a murder. It's rebellion against the, it's a it's a crime against the state, against the a threat to the well, integrity of the state. Is it that is that is punishable by and, and the natural or, order, right? So yeah. you do if you're a slave and you kill your master, then not only you not only are you crucified, but everyone in the household is crucified. That again is ridiculously harsh. Well, so this happens. I think it. I'm trying to remember. It's Tacitus writes about it. I think it's in the reign of Nero, that um, uh, a senator is is murdered by one of his slaves, and there's something like kind of five. He has five hundred, six hundred slaves, something like that, with women and children. And actually, even the Romans are appalled at the prospect of 
you know, all these slaves who are entirely innocent being killed. And there is a kind of, um, there's a kind of brief campaign to say, well, do we really need to do this? But they decide, yeah, we do. So the whole lot, the whole lot get crucified. Wow. That is, that is, I was about to say that's tough love, but there's no love in it. No, there's no love in that at all. It's just tough. No, it's just tough. Yeah. Um, what about, um, obviously, the most famous uh, crucified slave, uh, certainly in the Western, in the in the modern Western imagination, is Spartacus. Mm-hmm. Was Spartacus crucified? Well, he um, he's he's supposed to have been killed in the final battle. Uh, obviously, oh. if you go along with the Kirk Douglas film, then um, yeah. he isn't uh, because... You know, everyone turns out to be Spartacus, and so they all get yes. they all get crucified. But um, the point of that, of course, is that the context for this is that Rome Rome's conquest of the Mediterranean has generated a, an incredible amount of enslavement. Huge numbers of people have been enslaved, and among them, of course, are barbarians who are seen by Greeks as well as by Romans to be fitted for servitude and therefore Greeks and Romans tend not to worry about that particularly but also among the people enslaved are Greeks who do not see themselves as a fit people to be enslaved Um, and so they are brought to Italy and to Sicily and it's not like they are objecting to slavery as an institution they're objecting to the fact that they are the slaves that's the problem and so through the second and first centuries BC you have large numbers of uh, slave insurrections and they get dealt with incredibly brutally because in a you know maybe up to maybe a quarter maybe a third of the population of Italy by this point are slaves so the romans are sitting on you know the edge of a volcano so this is very analogous to the situation in 19th century american south yes where you've got a, 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 a peop, you know you've got a large slave population people live in a constant state of of, of they're either brutalized or ter- and terrorized on the one hand or they're the owners who live in fear of insurrection Yes, and are therefore driven to extremes. Yes, and so therefore it becomes incredibly important that uh, every slave absolutely understand what will happen if they in any way uh, try and fight back. Um, and so when Spartacus's rebellion is finished, famously, those who survive are crucified along the entire length of the Appian Way, which is across Italy to the heel of Italy. And these are serving as kind of billboards advertising Rome's power that's what they're there for. And it's meant to be a kind of disgusting spectacle. Yeah, which it must have been. I mean, so let's talk a tiny bit about the mechanics of crucifixion. Do we know much about that or, or are our sole accounts? You, you said earlier on, if I heard you correctly, that the, our sole accounts really are the gospel accounts. So when historians write about crucifixion now, are they, are they actually basing it on the Bible? It's very, very difficult to escape it. There, there is physical evidence for it. So the earliest physical evidence was found uh, in 1968, and it was in a tomb outside Jerusalem. It wasn't Jesus, <laughs> for anyone who wonders about that. Um, it was someone a bit later. Um, and what that shows is, so it's the heel bone, and there's a nail driven through it, and it's still attached to the, the wood. Um, and... What that shows is, so if you imagine, you know, how the crucifixion is portrayed in Christian art, um, the the feet are crossed and a nail is kind of driven through the feet or maybe through the ankles. Through both your ankles at once. Yeah, but but what this shows is that the side of the cross, um, the the feet are put on either side of the cross and then they're driven through the the ankle. 
again, I mean, that, and that would, of course, would enhance the humiliation of the experience because you wouldn't be wearing a loincloth. So your legs would be spread. You'd be naked. Yeah, you'd be naked. And um, and corroboration for that was actually found just before Christmas in Britain. So, um, oh, yes, you sent me the story, the story in the story. Yeah, you sent it from The Guardian because I know you're a massive admirer of The Guardian. Um, uh, and they found. So tell us about what they found. Yes, yeah, so, so a whole kind of cemetery was um, was excavated and the bones were removed. And then it was only, I think, you know, last year that they washed the mud off and they discovered the same thing had happened, that there was a nail embedded in the um, through the ankle. Uh, and, and this was you know, clearly this 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 unfortunate had suffered crucifixion. Um, however, I mean, again, there's no there's no firm or fast rule on this because it's perfectly possible that people were suspended by ropes um and in fact uh seneca in in an account well he he says that part of the um the fun of it for the executioners is to kind of spice it up to to vary it so he says that um you know one victim may be suspended upside down with his head facing the ground um Others, you know, in the classical sense, you know, the, the, the image of Jesus with the arms spread along a yoke. Um, others, he says, I mean, horribly. And so this is where the, the confusion between crucifixion and impalement comes in, that, it, that um, people might drive a stake up through the genitals. Uh, so it's, it's the, and, the, and the variation of this seems to be important. So there's an account that Josephus writes about as the Romans are besieging Jerusalem, and they're trying to intimidate the defenders, and they all the pe- all the deserters, all the people who are kind of trying to slip out, who who are armed, who are who are, who are captured. They're crucified in front of the walls of the defenders to try and intimidate them, and Josephus describes how the soldiers, out of their their hostility to the to the defending Jews, to their out of their hatred to them that they they kind of mix and match that they will twist their victims into kind of strange positions that they'll they'll it that, that basically that it's a bit of a laugh and so in the account from the gospel that you read where they mock Jesus that seems entirely true to the evidence that we have for how the military the security apparatus dealt with their victims that in a sense making the victim look ridiculous and grotesque and foolish was a crucial part of the punishment. The more amusing you could make it, the kind of more credit you get with your, your colleagues. Now, Tom, you haven't really answered my question about, um, in fact, you've utterly failed to answer the question. What was the question? The question was about how crucifixions worked in practice. So what do we actually know? Are you, are you, do you carry? So let's, in in that biblical account, a man carries a cross um, there's a big crowd, presumably. There's all the stuff with later on with sponges. There's, there's a whole <laughs> yeah. sort of, yeah. a whole yeah. load of yeah. there's a whole load of goings on. What do we actually know about what a crucifixion, an ordinary crucifixion, was like? Uh, well, t- to reiterate, there is no standard procedure. But having said that, um, discounting the gospel accounts, uh, yeah. the, the evidence is that before the crucifix, before you were crucified, you were very likely to be whipped. And the whip, okay. the whip would be probably one with, so it'd be like kind of cat and nine tails with chunks of metal on the tip. So it would, 
it, it would it would scourge you. Yeah, it would gouge you. out chunks of your flesh. So it would be unspeakably painful. So that then and then you would you would be paraded through the streets. You would have to carry absolutely. You would carry your maybe not the the bulk of the cross, but what was called the um the the cross beam. And you would carry what was called a titulus, which was the um the description of your crime around your neck, so that people could read why it was that you were being crucified. Tom, it's very Christian of you to be. It's interesting how you imagine yourself to be the uh, the crucified. I was thinking you would tell it from the crucifier's <laughs> perspective. Yes, I know. I'm portraying two thousand years of Christian weathering there. You are. Yeah, I th- well, I. Th- I, th- I think it, the experience of crucifixion is obviously more vivid for the crucified than the, for the, the crucifier. I think yeah, for the crucifier, so, it's just so, another working day. It's just a, well, it, and it is another working day. So that's another kind of fascinating aspect of it is that we have um, an account of of um, they, they, they're kind of like an agency. They're like a kind of torture agency. That if you're a city council or something, and you've got to, you know, do your oh crucifixion, they outsource it. They, they outsource, outsource it. it. They outsource it. Uh, and there's a kind of advert from, you know, saying we all your crucifixion needs. <laughs> we, oh we'll, you know, we'll torture. We'll do the torturing. You know, we'll burn them if you want. We'll gouge out the eyes if you like. That's fine. Do you have a selection. Do you have yeah. a selection of packages. You yes, can sign exactly. Up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, so we have that, uh, and so that's how we know that. Um, you know, there is a kind, you know, as you say, there are kind of various packages that you can have. So you could have them whipped, you can have them maybe blinded, uh, you can have them maimed beforehand. And, you know, these are all options. Now, if you don't blind, if you don't blind the victim before he goes up on the cross, then uh, the likelihood is that fairly soon birds will come and peck out the eyes. Oh, come on. Because there's nothing you can do to stop them. And probably your genitals as well. They'll cluster around your genitals and your eyes and uh, and attack them. And um and we we actually have documentary evidence for for this from um uh, the Talmud, which in a commentary on the Book of Genesis, and and this is um uh, the the account of uh, that fans of um, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat will remember. I think it's is it the Butler. No, it's the baker. It's the baker ends up crucified. He dreams he, that he's on a tree. He's hanging from a tree. And right. this is interpreted as presaging his crucifixion. And in this, the commentary on it, um, in, in the Talmud, it says that birds will eat the flesh from your head, which is presumably the eyes, because that's the, the kind of the softest material. So, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible detail. And Josephus also describes how birds flock around. Just um, before you get get on with your 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 torture porn, Tom, um, you said he for being for the yeah. person being put on the cross. Are they always men? I think almost invariably. Um, so the the slaves in the house that I mentioned in the reign of Nero, the women would have been executed as well. But it does seem to have been a distinctively um, right. suffered by men. You so you you you. How long are you up on the cross? Um, that entirely depends. You know, you could be there for days, uh, and in a way, so I'm not a I'm not a, a doctor, so I I'm not entirely sure of the mechanics of it. But but it is said that part of the torture is that you constantly have to lift yourself up because otherwise you'll suffocate for reasons that I'm not entirely clear and that I gather are contested by uh, by medical people. But but if that's the case, then you know you're in a constant kind of seesawing motion you know you've got your birds pecking out your eyes you're 
body is kind of gouged out with this awful whip. Uh, people are gawping at you. Your genitals are on display and you're heaving yourself up and down. So, I mean, it's a, it's a repellent, horrible, horrible fate. And so that's mm-hmm. why um, often people will break the leg as an act of mercy because then you will suffocate and die and your agony will be over. And then when your agony is over, you'll be taken down from the cross. And the likelihood is, is, is that you will not be buried in a tomb. So the, the guy who was found um, in, uh, outside Jerusalem was unusual. Jesus is unusual yeah. in this sense. The likelihood is, is that you will be carted away and chucked into a common tomb. And that is part of the punishment. So in Italy, if you have the deluxe torture package, you will have people who are dressed up in red, carrying bells, who will drag the bodies to the carrion tip, ringing bells as they go. And um, does anybody survive? Well, that's a good question. So Josephus, again, who is, um, by this point, he although he's a Jew, he's um, kind of a pal with Titus, who is the Roman general who is commanding um, yeah. the, the war against the, the Jews. He asks Titus for a favour if some of his friends can be taken down from the crosses. And Titus says, fine. And they get taken down and they, they still die. And they've only, they haven't been up for very long. So... From the evidence of that, the likelihood is is that you know even even a few hours are, are going to be be so excruciating and agonising that you're right. going to die of it. Yeah. So uh, just to reiterate, this is the most horrible of deaths, and it's the most humiliating of deaths. That's its significance in the Christian story. I think you know culturally, it's far more significant than the fact that Jesus rises that his believers believe him he rises from the dead is the fact that he has first suffered this horrific death. And that's what makes him out as unique at that point in the kind of the pantheon of Near Eastern Mediterranean gods. I think I think not just then, I think now. I mean, I think it, it is absolutely exceptional and it explains so much that has made Christianity so culturally distinctive. Okay, well, Tom, we'll take a break to allow the listeners to have a stiff drink, which they'll probably need after all that. Because after all that um, that gore and gruesomeness, we're going to get stuck into... The greatest story ever told, um, the crucifixion of Jesus specifically, and then what happened to the practice of crucifixion after that, and of course, arguably the most resonant symbol um, in all human history, the cross. So we'll see you for all that after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. In the run-up to Easter, we're talking about crucifixion, and we've talked about the practice of crucifixion and the emphasis on humiliation and the sheer horror um, of the experience of being crucified. And Tom, I started this podcast with an account from the Gospel of, according to St. Matthew, almost certainly according to biblical scholars, I think, not written by St. Matthew, the crucifixion of Jesus. So there are a lot of elements that are in all four Gospels. It's an extraordinary thing that we have this event from the first century AD, a sort of fly-bitten part of the Roman Empire, four different sources, and of course there are others. Um, there are other kind of apocryphal gospels and stuff, aren't there? Um, so we have this. The how how true do you think these accounts are, or can we can we not talk about that in any meaningful way about the veracity or accuracy of these accounts of Jesus' crucifixion? Well, so there is there is a kind of. Um, I, I, there is a, a movement in biblical criticism called mythicism, which yeah. implies that the whole Jesus never existed. The whole thing is just a kind of riff on, you know, vegetation gods, gods live, die, come back to yeah. life, all that kind of stuff. Jesus is Osiris or whatever. Yes, or Adonis or, or that kind of thing. I think that that is, is mad. I, th I think that that is the kind of atheist equivalent of creationism. It's putting the cart of what you want to believe in front of the horse of the evidence. And the evidence, I think, for the fact that Jesus was crucified is pretty strong. Okay. Uh, and I will, I will cite uh, a scholar, Geza Vermes, who is generally quite skeptical about the, the Gospels as historical evidence. But he says uh, that the death of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross is an established fact, arguably the only established fact about him. So that's the measure of how, how skeptical he is. Um, and as he points out, it's... It's attested in the four Gospels, very detailed mm -hmm. accounts. Uh, it's attested in the Acts of the Apostles. It's attested in the letters of Paul. It's attested outside the New Testament, um, almost certainly by Josephus, although we won't get into, we'll save that for the historical Jesus episode, whether Josephus does actually write about Jesus. I think he does, but the, it's, it's a kind of complicated issue. Uh, Tacitus mentions it. Um, it's alluded to in the Talmud. So I think it is very, very well attested. And I think more importantly than that, it's just not the kind of thing that anyone would have had any interest in making up. Yes, because it's not a recommendation for your God, is it, if you're going to invent a God? It's absolutely not. Uh, and I think the evidence for the, you know, the, so we've talked about the Gospels, the four Gospels, but actually the really key evidence, if you want to, if we're looking for, you know, what what about the um, the crucifixion narratives might be historical? Is actually the earliest texts written by a Christian, which are the letters of Paul. Yeah, and when you read Paul's letters, what becomes immediately vivid is that for Paul, the fact that 
Jesus suffered death on a cross is, a, is an enormous embarrassment and that the embarrassment for Paul is entirely the point that he's obviously kind of wrestled with, with the strangeness of it and the weirdness of it. Um, and in a sense has kind of made it the basis for his entire explanation for who Jesus was and what happened. Uh, so I think that that is absolutely fun. You know, if you want, oh, it's biblical criticism. It's the same as with all history. You look for the closest source. Yeah. And in that sense, Paul's letters are, are, are really, really important. Because they're now, written within, a, what, a couple of decades of the... Yes, event. yes. But also, interestingly, people, you know, people say, well, he doesn't really talk about the, the passion. Wouldn't he do, you know, wouldn't he talk about it? Well, no, because he's writing to people whom it's evident already know the story. Yeah. So this is, it, it, it's clear that this is quite a, you know, this is a story that people know about, that Christians know about, and I suspect that non-Christians know about as well. Because clearly there was considerable public interest in jesus's fate mm -hmm. you know, he, he, he for someone who, who claims to be king of the jews to be crucified by the romans outside jerusalem you know in, in what's a, a very prominent place in in jewish life it would have been noticed it's not the kind okay. of thing that yeah. I th so and if you look at paul's letters and you try and kind of extrapolate from that what can we work out from paul's letters about the passion uh, I think that you can see that um, he was crucified. Yeah. That he was condemned by the Romans. That he had nails driven through his body. That he was buried. And those, I think, kind of sustain the basic historicity of the gospel accounts. Now, the more I've looked at it, the more I've thought about it, the more I've reflected on it, the more I've come to think that in its essentials, the, the gospel accounts are, are accurate. And one of the ways to sift that is that you look at the narratives and if there are elements within it that seem to be the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, so in other words, to echo prophecies that have been made in what Christians call the Old Testament, Jews call the Tanakh, yeah. doesn't mean that they're, they're, they're necessarily wrong because obviously it, you, know, you can cast things in biblical terms, absolutely historical things that have happened in biblical terms. It doesn't mean that they're historical, but it perhaps means that they're less likely. So a, a kind of classic example of that is the, the account in the Gospels that at, at noon, the sky goes dark. That's first of all, you know, meteorologically improbable. <laughs> right. And secondly, it seems to echo a verse in... in um, uh, the book of Amos on that day says the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So, yeah, and also, so that, Tom, doesn't it doesn't it seem like the kind of element that you put into? I don't want to sound like a kind of Hollywood filmmaker, but a sort of semi-apocalyptic moment. You make the sky go dark because that's kind of what the audience expects, and it's the kind of grand statement of of divine significance yes exactly exactly that and that of course is the moment uh when friend of the show john wayne as the roman right. centurion in the great story yes. ever told the great oh story gosh. are you going to treat us like trolley this man was the son of god <laughs> and cecil b demille the director says to him could you put in a bit more awe john into your pronunciation of that and so he says or truly this man was the son of God. 
Great story. Wow. Anyway, so Leonard. so I so didn't think we were getting John Wayne in this podcast, <laughs> but it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. <laughs> so uh, on that basis, uh, one one way perhaps of sifting the stories is to look at stuff that doesn't have, you know, biblical foreshadowing. Yeah. Uh, of which I think that there are certain obvious aspects. So one we've already mentioned, which is the the torture uh, and the mockery before yeah. the crucifixion. That absolutely seems to go with the grain of Roman practice. And it should be added that when I say that the sol- you know, Roman soldiers are doing it, these aren't actually probably Romans. They're probably not legionaries. They're probably recruited from Samaria, meaning that they, they, these soldiers are Samaritans. So, And people will know from the parable of the Good Samaritan, the whole point of that story is that Jews and Samaritans kind of hate each other and so that's a, a kind of a, a a shading to the story that often isn't drawn out tom can i just interject before you get back into the the, the list of elements for those people who don't know what has jesus been crucified for okay so this is this is another thing that i think is probably true so that the titular and that has the thing that jesus is the king of the jews written in the three languages so hebrew and uh greek and latin um that seat again corresponds with what we know about Roman crucifixion practice, and the likelihood is that that is what why he was being crucified. He's been because crucified. He claimed- yes, he's he he. The Romans think that he's a royal pretender, and that's exactly the kind of thing that Romans crucify people for, because right. to to be a royal pretender, of course, is yeah. to dispute the the authority of Caesar. But then one other question on this, Tom, on the on the motive for the for the Romans crucifying him um a lot of people who are familiar with the story will know that pontius pilate famously doesn't really want to do it washes his hands and then washes his hands of it and says you know hence the phrase and says okay fine you want him dead get on with it something to do with me i mean that's a to then say to have that attitude and then to you know to prescribe the ultimate punishment the most hideous form of suffering there seems to be a slight disjuncture between those two things so Pontius Pilate yeah. doesn't really think Jesus is that bad a man but says okay submit him to the worst torture imaginable and that's quite a big leap yeah and people have said I, I think correctly that this is an attempt to spin it for a Roman audience oh right so um, in other words the gospels are being written to try and convert Romans and if the Romans are out and out baddies it won't work so Pontius Pilate has to be shown to be slightly... well, yeah, yeah, because the Gospels are probably being written in the wake of the the, the Judean revolt, the Jewish revolt, um, maybe a bit before, a bit after, much debated, but around that time, uh, and so Jews in rebellion against Caesar is not a good look. So this is something that has to be kind of spun quite carefully. Although right. having said that, um, the evidence of Pilate's term of office is that he does work hand in glove with the the authorities in Jerusalem, who, who would effectively other priests. So that that idea of a kind of liaison between the priests and Pilate is not impossible. But the idea of Pilate, uh, who seems to have been very robust in his approach to uh, to rebels, you know, washing his hands and all that kind of stuff, uh, that that really does seem to be, uh, I think, a uh, a kind of slight whitewashing. Um, But but again, having so so other things I think that are are, are likely to be true because it, you know, why wouldn't they be? Um, Simon of Cyrene, who you mentioned, um, Mm -hmm. helping Jesus with the cross. That seems to be true, not least because in Mark, um, he he says that Simon of Cyrene's sons are well known 
to the Christian community. So he's unlikely to be saying that, you know, if the whole story is just completely made up. Right. Um, so why would they get? It's, it's, are we led to? Are we to believe that Simon of Cyrene is an adherent of Jesus? And that seems to be the implication. Right. That seems to be the implication. Yeah. And all the stuff with the robes, the scarlet robe, the crown of thorns, all of that is is part of the humiliation process. Yeah. So that seems entirely possible. Yeah. The, the fact that he gets crucified at a place called Golgotha, which, as I said, you know, it's the only reference to it that we have. That seems a very specific it's reference. Kind of the execution ground outside the city. Yeah. The place of the skull, supposedly. Women at the feet of the cross, perhaps. I mean, again, it's the kind of detail that you know. Why would why would someone make it up? That would be plausibly a bit like the sort of um, the getting the front seats at a at a at a hanging at. At, at Tyburn or or the tricketers at the guillotine, is it? In seven, well, no, I mean, because why, because my, because they're plausible? not they're not there to enjoy it. You know, these no, are, this is Mary and Mary Magdalene, and they're mourning it. But it's plausible, isn't it, that there must have been people there who were there to enjoy it? Absolutely. I mean, that's I the mean, whole point of it. You yes. would imagine that public executions yeah. drew crowds. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And that there would be real kind of, and not quite, uh, groupies is not the right word, but there were real enthusiasts <laughs> yeah. of public suffering. Ex- crucifixion fans. Well, and the gospel, the gospel says much. You know, they, they say that people stand there and, and jeer and mock him and say, well, you know, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Yes. That, that mockery is a, is a part of the narrative. Um, I think the, uh, the story of Joseph Arimathea, again, you know, where, where does this come from if not from... So he's not, the guy who takes him he, down. Yeah, so he, he, it's his tomb that Jesus' body is laid in. Yeah, and he's another adherent, presumably. Yes. The key, the key aspect of this that does seem to be authentic yes. is, and aside from the, the, the brute fact of the crucifixion, the fact that he was crucified on the order of the Romans... I think this is the third kind of key factor which massively influences the subsequent way that it's understood. He seems to have gone willingly to death. He does not fight against it. He seems to have surrendered to his fate in a way that impressed his followers and demanded to be understood and explained. And it's that kind of passive acceptance, the fact that he goes to his death like a lamb going to the sacrifice that again massively, massively influences the subsequent evolution of Christian history and theology. Yeah, of course. But you think that adds to the veracity? Because you think if you made up the story, you'd have them fighting back or something. I don't think it adds to the veracity, but I think it's likely to be a true detail. Okay. Because every uh, Paul mentions it, uh, the Gospels mention it. It seems to have been fundamental to how Christians understood Jesus and his fate right from the very beginning. And then Tom. Okay, so I, I mean, I I completely um, accept your argument that it really happened. Uh, I don't know; I'm not enormously well informed about this, but um, it seems implausible to me that you've got four different accounts that have completely invented. I mean, there's there's no there's actually no real example I can think of. No, um, in 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 history from this period of of sources being completely wildly invented. I mean, I know we've had Tolly well, and his talking yeah. snakes. Well, but- Previously in the podcast, but yeah. that was one detail in, a, in an otherwise true story. Yeah, and I think I think that um, because this is in the Bible, and because for some people it's holy writ, uh, you know, infallible, and for other people it's evidence of kind of mumbo jumbo and superstition, and therefore has to be disproved. These are passages that are far more contested than any other, you know, parallel pieces of writing from ancient history. But essentially, you know. There's no difference. 
Yeah. As you as it, you as you know, you can read you know you can read a passage that describes someone you know existed. You know, a god appearing to him. You know, we did the Rubicon. Caesar yeah. standing on the banks of the Rubicon. We know that this is attested by people who saw it, and yet you get in the accounts. You know, accounts of kind of mysterious figures playing the pipes and all that kind of stuff. Um. So. It, it, it's no different with this. The fact that there are supernatural elements within it doesn't discount the fact that other elements of the accounts may be, you know, are, are likely to be true. Agreed. Because, and I of think, course, if we were to cast out all sources with supernatural elements, there'd completely. be nothing left from, you know, before the 17th century or something. Absolutely. And also in the context of, of antiquity, to have sources that reference this event within 20 years of it happening, so Paul's letters, and detailed narrative accounts... So the Gospels, that's, let's say, 40 to 60 years after the events. You know, by the standards of ancient history, these are really good. You know, we talked right, about this in the context of Alexander the Great. I was about you to know, say or, or, or Muhammad. Yeah. You know, these, yeah. if you cut, you know, I came to these, I came to the, the, the Gospel accounts from studying the sources for the life of Muhammad, and I couldn't believe how close in time they were. Yeah. So, Tom, um, let's let's just start to move, we, we, we've, we don't want to exhaust our listeners' patience completely, so let's move through the subsequent history. At what point would you say the, does the act of crucifixion become indelibly associated with Jesus? So in other words, in AD mm. 100, when people think about crucifixion in the Roman world, they probably don't think of no. Jesus. No. Um, so at what point does that change? Uh, well, so, so in the, even in the second century... Christian apologists are saying, you know, that yeah, this is really embarrassing. They they find it awkward, um, and I think it's very telling that although Christians do write about it, they don't seem to have illustrated it. And the people who do illustrate it are either mocking them. So there's a famous piece of graffiti from Rome, which um, uh, it shows a donkey, be, a, a man with a donkey's head being crucified, uh, and the 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 wording is. Um, Alexaminos worships his god, which is obviously a kind of you know a mockery of Christians. And magicians start to use it in their spells. They start to illustrate crosses, um, trying to invoke the Christian god. Um, by the fourth century, of course, the cross absolutely comes to be associated with the figure of Jesus, not least because God appears to Constantine. Because it appears to Constantine. Bridge, yeah. yeah. So is that the point at which the cross stopped? So with Constantine, and then I suppose, I don't know, Theodosius the Great or something, is that the point at which the cross becomes a... Because it starts to connote something very different, doesn't it? It must. There's a point at which the cross becomes a symbol of power and a symbol of the state rather than a symbol of being a loser. It's always been a symbol of power and of the state. That's what it is for the Romans. Uh, oh yeah, good point. The the, yeah, yeah. the the paradox of the cross is that it it effectively completely reverses that narrative, because it's saying you know Jesus has triumphed over those who've killed him. The slave has triumphed over the master. The tortured person has triumphed over the torturers. That's the kind of paradox of it. And although you're right that of course when you know with this sign conquer, that's what Constantine sees in his dream. And the cross becomes an emblem of power for for the Roman Empire, Emperor. The fact that it was an emblem of torture—that's not something that they can get rid of. And they still, you know, they're still struggling with it right the way through into the fifth century. So, uh, in the British Museum, there's an ivory that shows Jesus on the cross, and this is the first time that the crucifixion has been portrayed by a Christian artist, so far Ever. as we know. Wow, amazing! Um, and Jesus on that cross is shown basically. 
you know, he might like a kind of competitor from Love Island. He's buff (laughs) and honed and well, essentially, essentially what he's an athlete who has won. He's won, you know, in the Olympics. That's what he is. And his face is absolutely serene. And that's the tradition that then passes into Byzantine art and orthodoxy. The idea that Christ on the cross is, is serene in victory. He's a victor. But in the West, that tradition becomes different. And by the turn of the millennium, you're starting to get picked, uh, sculptures of Jesus being shown dead on the cross. And then over the course of the Middle Ages, increasingly, he's shown as, as suffering the degree of torture and agony that he would have done. Um, and that becomes fundamental to the way that Latin Christians understand Jesus and his suffering and the passion. So you know, his, his suffering becomes kind of fundamental to medieval Christian religious practice. But in um, the East, it's the image of Christ triumphant, isn't it? Christ, the sort of image, they don't yes. seem to revel in the, yeah. the idea of Christ, the underdog, yeah. to the same degree. I suppose partly, is that not because the Christ and Christianity is so closely identified with the autocracy in, let's say, Constantinople, and then I suppose in Moscow? You know, the, the idea of there's no separation of church and state. So to sh- just you, you wouldn't show the emperor as suffering. I, 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 yes, perhaps. But I think I think it's more theological. It's more the, the weight that you put on Christ's human suffering, mm-hmm. which in the in, in Latin Christendom becomes fundamental to religious practice and to theology. So. Uh, St. Anselm, who becomes Archbishop of Canterbury um, un- under William the Conqueror, he, he writes about um, seeing Christ on the cross and feeling this incredible agony and asking, you know, why was I not there? Why, why did I not feel a sword stab through my heart as Christ's side was pierced by the spear. Uh, why did I not feel the nails driven through my hands and feet? And this becomes something that expresses itself through artwork, through theology, through uh, meditation, um, yeah. and, and that you know that 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 becomes kind of very very important to the specifically Latin and then Western practice of Christianity. But I think ironically, one of the long term consequences of that is that. Ultimately, people in the West become desensitized to the horror of it, because in a sense, the cross is so key to Christian practice that people start just to see it as a symbol without reflecting on the full horror of what it represents. I think that's absolutely true. The cross is ubiquitous. Yeah. Because it's ubiquitous, we don't see it as an instrument. We don't see it as a kind of form like, you know, a much worse rack or something. It's yeah, not, I mean, it's a horrible. Screw. It's, it's not. It's, it's a torture. It's yeah, a, it's a torture instrument, but we don't see it as that anymore. It's a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, and I, you know, this episode. I mean, it's. I think it's the subject is a fairly revolting and upsetting one. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think properly to properly understand the impact that um, the idea of a crucified savior had in the early centuries of christianity you have to you have to grasp that you have to get that you have to feel it and ironically you know of all the of all the um you know people who've written about uh christianity and the figure of christ over say the past 200 years i think the thinker who most profoundly understood how kind of wrenching and weird 
the centrality of the cross is to Christianity was probably the West's most notorious atheist, Friedrich Nietzsche, who saw in the valorization of the victim on the cross something that he came to see as revolting because it it served to um to kind of sap as he saw it and and destroy the strength and power that he identified classical civilization as embodying yeah he saw the cross as a symbol of civility and suffering and kind of wallowing in mm. I mean, what would he say now if he was if he if he had his own? I can imagine Nietzsche as this sort of incredibly intemperate, permanently cancelled podcaster talking about wallowing in victimhood. But in, that's what the cross does. Absolutely. Right? I mean, so it's, it's a slave morality. He famously says, "Yeah, you know that this yeah. the, the valorization of slaves and victims." You know, and he would absolutely, you know, he would look at twenty first, the Western world in twenty twenty two, and absolutely yeah. identify it as being completely Christian in its concern for yeah. you know. Because he, he would make Jordan Peterson look like the <laughs> yeah. most wishy-washy. Well, well so, <laughs> so if you think yourself back into a world that was capable of crucifying slaves and see that as a public yeah. good, that, that is to recognise that saying, you know, assuming that the execution of slaves is somehow inherently, fundamentally, totally wrong, is culturally literate, historically literate. It hasn't been seen as that for for across vast swathes of the world, vast periods of time. And that is what Nietzsche kind of focuses on. So he, he, and it's specifically this idea, the paradox, he calls it, the formula, God on the cross, that hitherto, he writes, there had never and nowhere been such boldness in inversion, nor anything at once so dreadful, questioning and questionable as this formula. It promised a transvaluation of all ancient values. And he sees it as ushering in a sick, victim obsessed world that he 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 was revolted by but i think that it's precisely the scale of of nietzsche's contempt for christianity that draws attention to how christian we in the west remain to this day and we remain you know the cross is fundamental to that the idea of the crucifixion for people who are, who find that argument interesting and have not maybe heard it before, so presumably <laughs> have never listened to one of our podcasts before, Tom, is there any reading material you can recommend that they, they might enjoy on this subject? There is, there is. Um, uh, it is uh, my own recently published book, Dominion, which is it was, on it this was mean of me to get you to do that. I should have done it myself. Tom's book, Dominion, is all about um, Christianity's impact on on human history. Uh, so it's not it's not a, a Christian book in as in Tom is a Christian who's trying to convert you. It's it's explaining how Christianity has seeped into all kinds of things without us even noticing it, and what a revolution that was. So one last point, Tom. Um, I mean, this is an absolutely fascinating subject. Why, when, and why did crucifixion die out? Uh, was it sort of taint once once the Roman Empire became Christian? Was it impossible to keep? crucifying people because it was obviously reminiscent of jesus's fate yeah so it gets banned by constantine who's converted to christianity you know he says yeah we're not going we're not going to have that um but it it never it never fades completely from the near east so the persian emperors continue to do it um and it is mandated in the quran as a punishment for uh, those who who are rebels against god and his prophet um and so with the uh, the the establishment of the caliphate, crucifixion returns as a punishment to um, to the lands of the caliphate, and that's why the Islamic State, for instance, you know, 
uh, the past decade with, with, when they established their inverted commas caliphate, um, they reintroduced crucifixion as a man, as a Quranically mandated punishment. So it's uh, it's yeah. not completely gone. That's terrifying, isn't it? Um, when you, when you think that it's a it's a punishment deliberately designed to cause as much suffering as possible and to humiliate and so on. Um, we have maybe travelled less far than we thought. I know I've talked about this, and it I know I <laughs> makes me out to be incredibly brave. So that, it's not what I'm talking about. Not what the great thing I, is it, it shows you not just. <laughs> As I said to you when you threatened before the podcast that you would bring this up, I said it's brilliant because it doesn't just make you look very brave; it makes you look very kind and compassionate. So it you does win. Dominate. Yes, it does. It, I win every Stark way. contrast. I know cynicism and callousness in Chipping Norton. I, I know Nietzsche would spin in his grave. This I I I mention it simply because, um, this this was a, a documentary I made about um what Islamic State did to Christians and to Yazidis, a religious minority in northern yeah. Iraq. And I went out there assuming that I wasn't going to have to go anywhere near the Islamic State. And due to a complicated concurrence of factors, I ended up in a taxi going to the front with the Islamic State to a town called Sinjar that, where the Yazidis had lived that had just been taken back by the Kurds. And because I, you know, I was out there making this documentary, I had no choice but to go. So it wasn't my courage that took me there. I, it, in fact, the brave thing would have been to say, I'm too scared, I'm not going. I just kind of got swept along. It was your cowardice anyway, in it was the face my... of the production coordinator. <laughs> yes, we, we've all been there. <laughs> so, we, so, so we ended up in this town where it, it, you know, there are stories that Yazidi men were crucified there. And we were a mile or so away from the Islamic State, the people who'd done this. And I felt this kind of existential terror because suddenly... I was within kind of mortar range of people for whom the cross did not serve as a symbol of what it served for me, of the triumph of the weak over the strong, but of the opposite, of the right of the strong to torture to death the weak. And it took me back to a Roman world. It took me back to a world in which Roman imperial authorities kind of exercise that sense of of authority and power and so i was writing dominion at the time when i did made that film i came back and i rewrote the opening to focus on the crucifixion and what crucifixion had meant to the romans and the revolution in understanding that the history of christianity embodies because i you know to reiterate i do think it is profoundly profoundly influential on the whole course of western civilization and how we are influenced by it to this day brilliant all right thank you tom you've persuaded me um, and I imagine you're persuaded. I'm glad you weren't crucified. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> That's the sweetest I'd thing be, you've ever said. Yeah, otherwise I'd be doing this podcast with... Um, <laughs> well, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Yeah, right in. It's such a, it makes, um, no, that was that was absolutely fascinating. And I think it's... Um, we never do dwell on the um, the horrible suffering that the crucifixion involved. And next year we can do the same with Easter eggs. <laughs> Which, <laughs> the, the other horror of Easter. <laughs> right. So on that bombshell, uh, thank you very much for listening. I hope you get the Easter Bunny brings you all you desire. And we will see you after Easter with some more historical delights. Goodbye. Happy Easter. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, 
please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dot com.